So, welcome, welcome, and welcome to episode two of this podcast series by Rising Arts Agency and King's College London, exploring the ways power imbalances show up in cultural and creative partnerships. If you would find it helpful to interact with the text version of this episode, you can find a link to a transcript in the show notes. So spring has sprung for us since the making of the last episode, and I hope it's bringing you some more warmth to your days and nights. It can feel like a time to reflect on the challenges of winter and also notice the infinite beauty that is growing out of these past dark and cold months. With these two ideas in mind, this episode is a delicious treat made up of conversations from two different spaces. One is from a lab that Rising hosted for some of its young artists to explore their experiences of power dynamics when working with cultural institutions. So you'll hear recordings of some of Rising's young artists speaking at this lab, as well as a chat between Yuella, Andriana and Jess reflecting on the experience. There's lots of honesty and vulnerability in this one, and we hope that you get a lot from it. We're going to be jumping between the different spaces throughout the episode. But if this sounds complicated, don't worry, I'm here to guide us through. So let's start by hearing a few snippets from the lab to get ourselves warmed up. A lot of my things I've been involved in institutions have all been for like emerging artists kind of things. Uh-huh. Where no matter how long I'm there for, it will always feel like you are small. Oh, you are this thing. You are this thing. Mm-hmm. We're doing this for you. You should be thankful. Right. Kind of relationship. Yeah. Which kind of sucks when you're an emerging artist. The idea of debt when you're an emerging artist I think is huge. Mm. And like almost like a bondage to the organisations that help yes. you. So I'm 28 and I lots of the I facilitate all ages. Um, uh, at the moment I'm working with six form age, so 16 to 18 and I go into spaces to work with these people and people think I'm a student. Yeah. And I'm like I'm 10 years older. Um yeah, and I've had people come into the space that I'm running and sort of question me or <laughs> that quite funny really. Um yeah, and having to kind of work that bit harder to be taken seriously as a as a female, I do definitely find that I've witnessed it firsthand many times. Some places that work with creatives that aren't creatives, so like health places and charities, I've had issues with them. Even simple things like just not crediting me, it's like mm. I, it's not going to make a big difference anyway. But yeah. that's like the bare minimum. No, I'm not being paid yeah. a lot for this. Yeah. I've done the extra work that you probably asked for. Yeah. Like the 100 fixes that weren't yeah. in my initial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, I shouldn't have to email you 10 times. Honestly. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, credited for something. Absolutely. Um, and then talking to other artists and stuff that's been part of it, it's like you start to realise how much institutions can get away with when you don't create space for artists to talk to each other. Kind of came out for both of you in terms of how that lab went. Was there anything particularly that um, that like uh, challenged or deepened your understanding of power at the lab? At least I was genuinely surprised that there were a lot of positive experiences, mm. and maybe this is me being very cynical and kind of expecting people to have had a lot of power imbalances in their partnerships and relationships with cultural institutions. And also, if you've had a lot of 
negative experiences, a lot of experiences where you've spent so much time fighting for the basics, fighting for getting the resources you need, even kind of okay experiences where the basics are covered, but that's yeah. it, mm. seem like fantastic and brilliant and empowering yeah. uh, because the baseline is just so low. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think there is something about the way in which, like for me, it was just really clear how important community and like the collective is in that. Yeah. Because when you're an individual and you're moving within these spaces and between um, working between yourself as a freelancer or a sole trader and a big institution, um, you know, you can get lost in it. You can feel like, like you were saying, like the bare minimum is enough. And actually, you know, just being able to sense check things with people, being able to have a, a protective barrier or to be shielded by some of the crap that can happen in partnerships um, was really, really valuable and something that you know, doesn't cost a lot, <laughs> you know, it's not, it doesn't cost a lot to have allies, but it means so much and it can change, um, it can change everything. Kind of to your point, Yuella, in one of the groups we were chatting about um, how if you're part of a kind of uh, cohort or you come in and there's someone sort of between you as a freelance artist and the institution mm. you don't necessarily see the labor that's going on there in terms of advocacy on your behalf mm. and yeah we couldn't really decide between us whether it was better to know or not yeah <laughs> like <laughs> do you want to know that often an organization like rising is mm. doing that like difficult conversation like asking for um, higher pay, kind of pushing how important whatever project you're doing is, is, mm. or do you just want to get on with your work and benefit from the protection of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and what that can do in terms of your relationship directly with that institution, mm. because if you are always protected, you don't get a chance necessarily to build those relationships that allow you to sort of have a say in what's going on or make change directly in that institution. You're kind of siloed a little bit from mm. that. One of the things that people also spoke about last night that um, was new to me as an outsider to the sector is how it's a very hierarchical sector, which I knew, but also how the gaps between the different levels are so big that it's so difficult to get from one place to another. There aren't really clear stages you're either an emerging artist or you're somewhere at the top running productions and leading an entire building and an organization and how do you get from the bottom to the top which very often isn't possible for most people because there aren't opportunities in the middle to develop those skills to develop those networks mm. um, to learn how to apply for massive funding pots to be able to do some of this work mm. So let's explore some of the young artists' experiences of trying to find this progression that we're talking about. The people working there, there was no route up and they always hired out and they wouldn't train anyone. And even if you expressed an interest in an area, it wasn't connected enough. Like they had loads of different departments doing loads of different things. So you'd think there'd be a lot of routes for people, but they didn't really communicate the different areas. And they also just always hired out and always got people who had like years of experience from other cities. And they weren't really like, um, that felt unfair to staff that were there and were like loyal to them, to me. 
as someone who very much still feels like an emerging artist despite being here for as much as I have, it's quite annoying that I'm still considered an emerging artist. And this was meant to help progress that, or at least that's what I felt like it was meant to do. You don't have a contact in that space, even just getting that first opportunity to meet everyone else who then will basically always invite you to other stuff, you can't even get an opportunity that easily, it's not that accessible, and so I feel like people have a very particular idea of what they think they need to do to break it, and Bristol especially isn't seen as like a space to allow people to break even further and like deeper in their career. I aged out of the access yeah, teams yeah, yeah. in the pandemic and was like, delicious, I love it. <laughs> I assume my salary will go up as a result of my passing the age bracket because I can't get any of the fucking discounts anymore, so I assume that I can come in for free. Like, <laughs> Like straight away, like we had two, two and a half, three years of like, brilliant, I can't do anything. And now I'm elderly, apparently, and I'm a professional artist. Yeah, yeah it just feels like from every single angle, uh, it's made harder for anybody to want to be a creative. And therefore, people who are already underrepresented in the sector, they have even higher barriers to overcome. And then are asked to do more emotional labour <laughs> and like are often like the only person who looks or sounds or feels like them in a space. And then are asked to sort of like exhibit their lived experience or trauma so that the organisation feels better about what they're doing overall. Mm -hmm. It's almost like let's deliver this nice little thing over here doesn't cost that much money we'll send them on their way we'll never see them again doesn't really matter from a leadership mm. level mm. and then we can get on with making like the very important high art mm. that we care about you know and there's no like actually you're bringing people into your organization that have such insight if only you could see what's right in front of you yeah communities should like design write whatever institutions engagement strategies or like create it because it's like the only reason they're working with us or anyone is because of audiences or whatever you know <laughs> to bring in new audiences that's the outcome in the end or to be perceived as working with communities or to get this funding to show that you know a lot of the issues would be different if the right people were thinking about what what that even means. What is that engagement? Do people even care about your institution? You know, I think when when institutions have that power over their their engagement strategies, their audience development, whatever it is, you know, they have vested interest in either maintaining the building or whatever or promoting this big show that they're doing this high art thing or or whatever they're not held accountable um particularly as most of them get public money um you know I have a lottery funding or whatever like I, yeah I just think that there needs to be a way that they can kind of feel like they're being held accountable and that there's a stake whereas if a partnership doesn't go well it's usually on an individual who initiated the partnership even uh, either an engagement person or a blah 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 learning support blah 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 person that's 
that's their risk that they take on. It's on a very individual level and it's not on a leadership level. But how do you ensure that an institution can feel the weight of a bad partnership or can feel the weight of, you know, of an exploited freelancer? And they can't because they're so big unless there is, you know, you flip the you flip the power in some way. So, yeah. Mm. Because we often, as a young people's organisation, working with 18 to 30-year-olds, we often can't apply for a lot of young people's funding because they're younger. And it's like, I totally understand the support for young people who aren't at university, but often it's sort of alongside universities and maybe making up for some of the things that aren't happening happening within courses necessarily. It's not really that follow-on of like, oh shit, I've left university and I can't access any of the equipment I could before, or oh, I'm, you know, like in my late 20s, early 30s and I've just realised this is what I want to do with my life because I've been stuck in retail for 10 years and now there's no support for me (laughs) it's like yeah but career stage has nothing to do with age you can be an emerging artist at any point you can be in your 60s yeah and that can be just your entry into that profession so i i absolutely get it why there's support for young people but that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be supported separate for emerging artists absolutely who might not necessarily be young people and it's Mm. almost like that thing of like if you monetize what you love then it like ends up being the thing you hate I don't think that's the phrase I'm just badly (laughs) paraphrasing but you know there's like something of that like as if you should be punished for wanting to make creativity your career Mm. somehow and it's like yeah you have to compromise somehow Um, to make it work so that's either you have to have a day job so that you've got a steady enough income to support that instability in the sector Um, you can't be like a full-time freelance artist because that's too uncertain or you need a producer or an administrator you have to do your own taxes like you know there's so much not just emotional labor but labor labor that Mm. goes into all of the structures around being a freelancer that everyone is sort of doing individually because to pay an accountant or a producer or whatever feels even more impossible than trying to pay yourself and I think there's this lack of sort of generosity I think between between generations I guess because I think there is a lot of knowledge held in older generations but because of this very competitive nature that I think the creative sector particularly has been quite wedded to that knowledge sharing and appreciation and sort of intergenerational collaboration isn't always possible doesn't always work and it can be difficult um, as an emerging at whatever stage that is emerging creative to navigate when you're brand new and it feels like that knowledge is very like gate kept as is the space as is the you know here's a template contract that I use this is the kind of IP rights that I ask for that kind of like knowledge sharing Um, or even just I think what was really noticeable last night is how many people had worked at the same organization and had a similar experience but didn't necessarily know that about the other people in that space 
and how we can create spaces to have those conversations or to be like I'm working with this person has anybody worked with them before like what was your experience what should I know who should I talk to there were many ideas that came up during the lab that the artists felt like it would be really powerful to share with one another more often. One of these themes that kept coming up was around pay and contracts. So let's hear what people had to share on this. You like little things like you're doing in the design and you basically create as the artist that you then have to paint on the sculpture. And they're like the contract is like them wanting all the rights for your intellectual property. Like basically, you're already paying me a fraction of what's coming. Like I'm already giving yeah. so much time and materials in kind to do this. Yeah. Now on my IP, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had to basically communicate what my boundary was as an artist contractually. Nobody in the arts is learning the negotiation skills that everyone in every other industry is doing and everybody actually is prepared for us to negotiate, for us to push back and to do all these things. They are kind of ready for you to do that, but like we are all like, thank you for the bowl of porridge, I'm so grateful for the bowl. You know, like we're, we're used to that scarcity kind of thing, yeah. which is very, like, it's very real. Trying to come to terms with, yes, I need to get money, but I also cannot work for this pitiful amount of yeah. money. Knowing that, but also being like, I can't just deny work. Yeah. Then how can I get any more work if I don't work? I think the first thing that comes to my mind immediately is just the amount of times you're given an amount of work and a pay that just doesn't match it, especially if you're a young creative. Just the amount of times people ask you to do something and you hear it originally, you're like, that's fine. That's it's not a lot, but it's fine. And then they'll slowly expect more and more yeah. throughout the process. Yeah. And that's the one that I've seen a lot, even at some places that are like organisations that are meant to be not doing, like actively say they're not doing that. If you were in a, a salaried job, you would be paid to do the meeting, you'd to, like get all of the stakeholders involved or like get resources. And it's stupid that they, you know, they don't do that. Yeah. It's, and, and, Rarely people do, I think, rising take that really seriously, which is amazing. They always, yeah, which has been so refreshing for me that I'm like, oh, that, that should be the norm, yeah, no. you know? Um, but it, you are really at the mercy of the fact that, you know, as a freelance young person, it's just kind of like, well, I have to take the work. Yeah. In terms of, like, power and power dynamics, I think it's the, the lack of transparency around pay and expected pay, I think, is, like, the thing that kills a lot of people's careers early on because they don't know that they're being underpaid. Someone said it last night about this idea that freelancers, but generally people in the sector, aren't taught to negotiate in the mm. same way that other people in other sectors are. Yeah. And so, actually, when an organisation puts a price to you... Mm they're kind of expecting pushback or mm. a negotiation and I don't know it I, I don't know how true that is actually because I think the sector itself is also yeah hates talking about money as much as individual creatives do but actually there often is wiggle room mm. if you ask for it and I think knowing what other people have been paid or what who they've worked with recently and what their experience was like allows you to have that, like you were saying, about that community behind you to really push for it. Yeah. But also being like, you asking for more money does change things because it might up the 
like basic rate that that organization then pays all its creatives in the future and if you're just trying to pay your rent that's not always at the forefront of your mind Mm. but if you get more money for that job that also means you can wait for the next right opportunity or push for more money for the people that refuse it because you've got that bit of extra leeway Mm. but one of the things that came um, out very clearly to me last night that builds on this idea of a scarcity mindset and the lack of space to dream, to imagine something better, is around fear and how much mm-hmm. of it comes from a place of, from a freelancer's perspective. What if I say no to this? Yeah. Where will my next job come from? Will I be put on a blacklist and yeah. never get an opportunity again? Will this be a black mark? But it's also fear from the perspective of people in cultural institutions who are continuously thinking, what if we try to do this and then it doesn't work out? What if we relinquish power and then no one comes to us? What if we lose our own position and our own bread and butter? Um, and so much of how all of these structures and processes are maintained comes from a place of fear mm. of losing even the little bits that people currently have instead of a place of hope and optimism. 100%. Because so far... People haven't had the chance to hope and dream, particularly people who are of marginalized communities, of grassroots organizations, and so forth. The young people in the lab had a few ideas about the way cultural institutions are often structured and how leadership works within this, which might help us dig a little bit deeper into this area. You have to wait for somebody to die or to retire. <laughs> The issue is, is that there is like a person at the top who is doing weird stuff. Yeah. And everyone is like, God, I wish they would stop doing that. And it's like, uh, yeah, we all <laughs> wish that. And like, until they stop being the person that's in charge, like, there's going to be this sense of like, they can have so much control over that space. And like, it feels like for some reason no one can do anything about it. That, that person who causes all the issues, that when they leave, there's still the remnants of their issues and mm-hmm. it takes so much time to rectify that to, in a way that, that lets progression happen from that point, mm-hmm. which then just backlogs more and more ways we can actively involve ourselves in creativity. You know, if we went to some heads of institutions with some of the recommendations from our lab, which, you know, like better pay, better contracts, they would be like all rising you know (laughs) there's so many things we have to think about like we've got to pay the bar staff and we've got to pay my assistant and like we've got to pay yeah there's just so much (laughs) to think about running an organization is you know there's so many considerations and you're like as if it as if we don't understand that and we Mm. can't see it on every single person's face when you go into an organization that they're like working at maximum capacity Mm. But if you don't start to have those conversations, it will never change for them or for freelancers or for young creatives or emerging creatives or people re-entering the sector. You know, speak to any parts of working in the cultural sector. They are on their last legs, bless them. Do you know what I mean? And there is... um, that scarcity model, there's those feelings of being dispensable, um you know it is really difficult and there's no progression and that was something that was mentioned about actually how you move within an organization there's no space for growth so often you have to leave and you know if you're kind of like in the middle management space 
you often have to leave um, and go to different organisations or whatever to be able to progress. There's no kind of like, actually, let's see this person as a whole person and their interests and how can they move from through the organisation. There's nothing saying that a finance assistant couldn't move into kind of doing assistant directing or assistant producing even, but no one would ever think of that. Do you mm. know what I mean? I guess that's what institutions are, right? They're like a group of people that come together and then feel like they have to make some rules. Mm. And then those rules become um, obsolete, difficult to navigate, but also really hard to change. Mm. And so there's lots of individuals navigating and changing it in small ways, but it feels like it's in service of something that no one's super happy with. Yeah. It just made me think a lot about like DIY culture and how, particularly in a city like Bristol, how much of um, Bristol's established, uh, you know, cultural cultural and creative reputation comes or was born out of grassroots and DIY movements and DIY artists and creatives. And it feels quite interesting that, I don't know, like the kind of resourcefulness of artists and creatives is like weaponized against them mm. um and there's this term that i don't know it's been like circling around it's probably like age old in the academic space but on social media around um weaponized incompetence mm. um and um <laughs> and you know is it this idea that you know, in Jamaica, we would say you play fool to catch wise, but you're like, you, you don't do something very well so that the other person will do it well. So often it's seen in like more domestic spaces between gender roles, um, you know, one partner is not very good at like cleaning. So it's like, oh, I'm just not very good at this. You do it much better, you know, and you end up doing it all the time. And I think there is a kind of interesting relationship within the sector around the reliance on Bristol's creative scene as um, an abundant source that you don't need to invest in because it will do some good shit in the end. And mm. it's just relying on this idea of like, we know that y'all won't stop knowing that artists will do some things in the mm. end. Like there are members of our community who are in real difficult financial situations but are like still running like workshops in the community around art and access because that's what they that's what they will do you know that's what they will do and in terms of like the political um environment that we're in right now that's not really a guarantee you know we're in a space at the moment where people's material experiences are severely impacted and will be impacted whether it's thinking about arts and creativity and education like thinking about that space that's coming you know like these young minds are going to be adults and they're not going to care about creativity or they're not going to feel like creativity is something for them whether it's about the infrastructure not being there to support next generation like actually you know we're looking at housing crisis cost of living crisis actually when those things are compounded what does that actually mean for our sector? Um, what is that going to materially look like for us? You can give creatives and freelancers dignity by giving them power. So if you haven't already, 
Here's a gentle reminder to just take a small break to maybe stretch or move in any way or do, do whatever helps you feel more kind of soft and relaxed really. If you want to have a break, feel free to pause the audio now and we'll be here when you get back. So hope you had a fantastic break if you took one. Uh, what did you get up to? Did you have some tea? Did you have a poo? Did you move your head like a pigeon? Who knows? But now we're going to get into thinking about risk taking. And let's hear from some of the rising family to see what they think about taking risks in order to bring about some of this needed change within the culture sector. Just the nature of like rolling leader, leadership every five years and being able to have an opportunity for a new breath of life, it's, it's a, just a way to experiment doing things differently. And it's just refreshing to see that happen. I think it's just like, cool, like, let's just embrace that road even more so because it doesn't have to be perfect. I think people almost are scared of doing things differently for the idea that they're going to fail in even doing that. But I think there's literally more power and more excitement in trying out new things and learning from that failure than having, I mean, transparent about that journey as opposed to just being like, we're just going to do it because we're too scared. Can we train leaders on how to speak to young people? Oh, yes. 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 And not make them feel really uncomfortable the moment they walk in the door. Yeah. And then expect like peak performance as well. It's a bit weird. That is so good. Because you expect the young person to have trained and whatever to be able to be there, but what have you done to be able to really work with them? Imagine if all of these things didn't have to happen, if all of that energy wasn't lost in navigating the system, there would be so much more space, headspace, cognitive space, energy to actually do things that are fun and exciting, mm. that benefit communities, that create cultural value, that really maximize people's energy and efforts into ways that are productive, not necessarily yeah. economically productive, but productive in terms of creating things for communities instead of creating things for cultural institutions that meet their needs, goals, expectations. So, like, from your experiences, like, and what kind of came out of the lab, like, in terms of um, power sharing and, like, how it can be easier or, um, yeah, feel more equitable, like, what sort of things would you say to maybe freelancers of things that they can do to kind of make that feel better for them? <laughs> yeah, literally. We're laughing because we're like, you don't need to do anything. You're yeah, perfect and gorgeous. Keep doing what you're doing. Okay, great. Moving on. <laughs> Look, but I feel like this question is entirely in opposition of the entire project. So mm. this project came about because we thought we don't want people to continuously try to navigate mm. these power imbalances, yeah. all of this to be on their shoulders. We want to think about what else is possible to make it easier for freelancers or grassroots organizations. Yeah, 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 yeah. So kind of by asking this question, we are going in the opposite direction of what we had committed to do mm -hmm. and what brought us together with this project. But maybe it's fair to say that at the moment, if we're trying to balance between how do we make things easier for people currently yeah. doing this work and what might a better future look like 10, 20, 30 years from now. Mm. 
it's also fair to accept that there are things that people can do for themselves at the moment. And maybe one of those things is build strong networks and strong communities where you can ask people for help, ask them for resources, ask them for template contracts, ask them what it felt like to work with a specific organization and whether you should say yes to a specific project with that organization based on the feedback that you've received from the community. Yeah, 100%. I think that's something that really has come out really strongly is like people need to be resourced and they, like we're all, we're all really struggling. And I think particularly, you know, freelancers, um, particularly emerging creatives of any age, you know, you're in a, in a space where things are particularly precarious and um, not everybody has the energy to show up for themselves. And we've kind of talked about how it is actually harder sometimes to show up for yourself than other people. So having that community, you're right, is so key in um, people being able to hold you up and support you and and pour into you in ways that maybe you might not have the resource or the capacity or the energy to do, particularly in a sector that can be so um, extractivist and just want more and more and more and more, you know, um, it is really important to be able to to create space for yourself to be still and um, to get what you need. Yeah, and I think also in terms of that community, just acknowledging the sort of intersectionality in that and the different privileges and spaces of allyship that can happen. So whether it's like, I've got energy for this fight right now, let's go Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) on your behalf. Or if it's like, actually, I've got a relationship with somebody who could help. And so let me talk to them or put you in touch directly or, you know, kind of leveraging whatever privilege or knowledge you have in that space maybe you've done a similar project and been paid a certain day rate Mm. even just sharing like day rates that you've got from different people I think just like really at that basic level um of sharing that as we go Mm. and so that the people who are coming up behind us have that knowledge and can start conversations at a point where they should be started and evolve it from there rather than having to do all that work every single time. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And so I guess to like turn it on its head or to expand the conversation a little bit, thinking about people who are in currently in institutions, um, maybe those who are, you know, supporting on projects where they're bringing creatives and grassroots organisations in, or maybe people in leadership positions in institutions who might be aware or unaware of what's going on and some of the um, some of the kind of tensions and challenges that we and freelancers and grassroots organisations are going through, um, you know, what, what sort of things would you say to them in terms of how to move forward from what we've discussed? One of the things that we spoke about earlier is infrastructure and resources. And I yeah. think very often when we think of power, We think of resources, but monetary resources. And I would like to encourage people to think of the abundance of other resources that they might have and how those resources can be shared. So whether it's space, whether it's equipment, materials, other things that they might have that they can simply share with people in their communities, whether they're freelancers, community members, etc. 
where can you bring other people into your conversations whether it's like initiating projects writing funding bids designing engagement programs like you mentioned Duella and not in an extractivist way like acknowledging the expertise from people who are coming from outside your organization and aren't part of that culture or that group think that often happens in an institution Mm. and I think there is some work to be done there around getting comfortable with giving up power I don't think we would be doing a disservice by saying this is easy I think the the culture of the culture sector is to get to a position of power and stay there forever and so we know that it is a radical proposition to share that power to set a term on your leadership you know all of the things that rising really tries to model and I think you know investing in coaching investing in your own support system around that like how you get to a place of confidence and security and I think also like modeling that vulnerability too so not doing that work away from your organization or your team but showing that you're a three-dimensional human being who feels some type of way (laughs) about inviting people in to maybe dismantle the way that you've been trying to run your organization that's Mm. that is scary but it does expand your possibilities and your comfort zone towards more equitable partnerships and futures Mm. damn (laughs) (laughs) i was like oh it finished okay great (laughs) (laughs) um yeah no that that oh my god that was great (laughs) um one thing that i've got is around um partnerships like we're talking spoken a lot about partnerships and actually it's become clear that we need to expand our ideas of what partnership is like it's very easy to say, oh, we want to have more equitable partnerships. But in your in your organisation, what is the obstacles or the barriers? What's the reality of your of your situation? Like maybe, you know, in terms of relationships and making people feel seen and three dimensional people. Is it four dimensional? How how many dimensions do people have? Ten dimensional people. <laughs> infinite dimensional people which is so right infinite dimensional people um you know going from um that but your contracts might be completely dehumanizing Mm. or your processes might be dehumanizing or your your spaces might be really inaccessible how might we go about that and as Jess said like opening up the power and bringing many as many people as possible into that and then say okay What's our will? How are we going to do it? Where are we going to find the resource? Um, What's our plan? So I think, you know, just being really kind of like, um, I think it's quite easy for this stuff to feel really like airy fairy and um, aspirational, but it is real. And there are material consequences from either doing this or not doing it. And Mm -hmm. are you going to be about it or are you not? One of the questions that we asked in the lab was around what could an equitable sector look, feel, taste, and sound like? I had one for sound, and it was someone saying, sure, what do you need? Mm. Like, I would love to see a sector that is doing the absolute most for its workforce. (laughs) 
salaries for everybody. <laughs> I, I heard this amazing thing once on this podcast about kind of how people feel like they have to reach up in order to get somewhere in a sector. And once you do that, like, what's next? Talking about the kind of longevity of and sustainability of careers. But if everyone's constantly in a circle and connecting and sharing, that feels sustainable and actually, like, it could work. I mean, maybe the sound is like the ding of someone replying to your fucking goddamn email. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I like a map with clear directions because yeah. I'm so fucking lost. Yeah. But then also just like not, you don't have to follow one path. Yeah, yeah, can, yeah. It's like a big sort of, not spider diagram, but just loads of different yeah. pathways which expand. Um, it'd be great to hear what kind of came out that out of that for you, what stood out to you about that, and then maybe we can invite our listeners to do the same reflection. My favorite thing was um, what would an equitable partnership or sector sound like? And someone said, "Sure, what do you need?" Mm. And just this idea of being able to share resources and giving people the things they need to do the work that you're asking them to do on their own terms, with their own ideas, yeah. in ways that meet transparent, open um, expectations, just brought so much joy and hope. And yeah. I love that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a sure that was like equally important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's not the car, what do you need? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you again. What do you mean? It's like, sure. You know, that affirmation. Like, yes. You again. There was a yes as well, wasn't there? There was like, yes, you know? So I think, yeah, definitely. That was a great one. I think I might take one that Uella said, which was what it feels like, which was like a kind of soft bed, but that your bed can be many things. Like it can be your dining table, Literally. it can be your rest space, it can be your entertainment zone, mm. <laughs> it can be your uh, workplace. So yeah, I think that idea that, you know, an equitable sector could feel like, I don't want to say getting into bed with people. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it's a big deal. Like, it's, and it's very trusting. Yeah, it's a meeting of energies and will and yeah. Yeah. Thing. There was another one about taste around um, food and kind of thinking about just a kind of like the different variety of food um, and like how nourishing it is and bringing different cultures food into spaces. And I think, you know, it speaks to another point about spices and like the richness of like a spice market and like how, you know, you can't necessarily pinpoint the like individual spice but they all work really well together and it just smells really warm and inviting and rich um so I think you know using our senses is a really good way for us to explore and experiment with things that we can't yet maybe imagine but we know that they're possible if you're an artist and you've been listening to this we see you my friend and you're not being too fussy or demanding by expecting basic levels of security with your work, you know. And if you are somebody working in a cultural institution and have some level of authority, we really believe you can enable so much goodness if you're generous with your decision making and take some risks. 
And we know it can seem really radical and can feel really scary, which is understandable. But we're right here rooting for you. So our time together is nearly up. But before we go, we want to pose a couple of questions for you all to think about. The first is for anyone, and it is, what would a thriving cultural sector look, sound, smell, taste and feel like? The second is for the artists out there trying to find and make work in the culture sector. And it is, what do you need in order to reach out to other fellow artists to share knowledge and build some sort of solidarity when making calls for change? The third is for anyone working in cultural institutions, and it is, when are feelings of perfectionism getting in the way of trying something new? Thank you for sticking with us. The music was created by myself, Joe Hill, and this episode was co-produced along with Uella, Jess and Adriana. We want to thank the Collaborate Fund and Dare Shack for making this work possible and give an extra bear-sized hug to all the artists that came along to the lab. So try to be gentle on yourselves. Thank you for your time and uh, I'll see you in the next one. <laughs>